Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Friday, June the 12th. Arden Swelling here with Ben Nicholson-Smith and our producer, Christian Ryan. As always, Ben, what's going on, man? You know what? Not a lot. It's uh, It's been a while since we've recorded an at the letters episode. feel like a lot's happened, both in the broader world and, of course, in the baseball world with the draft this week. But it's good to be back on and, and talking some baseball with you. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about the MLB draft that just occurred this week. I'm sure we're also going to get into the ongoing labor negotiations between the owners and players. But, uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to, we should address off the top something that listeners may or may not have noticed. But we didn't produce an episode last week and we actually haven't done one in, in the month of June because honestly, we couldn't. You know, we all watched what's happened over the last couple of weeks. We all watched George Floyd killed in the streets by a police officer in Minneapolis. Um, and we all watched the demonstrations that followed. And we listened to the long overdue discussion about black rights and the different rules that apply to black people in our community than the ones that apply to people who look like Ben and I. And taking all of that into consideration and this incredibly important public discourse that was occurring, I, you know, I'll speak for Ben. I don't think either of us could really bring ourselves to turn up here and talk about another baseball labor dispute over the last couple of weeks. Like it, it comparatively, it just does not matter. What's happening in baseball right now is so inconsequential in comparison to the dialogue and frankly, the reckoning that our society at large was having about injustices done to the black community. We felt it was not the time for us to be sitting here and talking about the minutia of baseball that, you know, we obviously like talking about draft signing pool bonuses and, and potential return to play scenarios. But, you know, as you say, Arden, this is a really big moment in our society and a long overdue one for the black community that does face a lot of systemic racism. And so that's important to acknowledge that it exists, uh, it continues to exist, and we want to help do whatever we can to eradicate that. But last week just didn't feel like the time and to allow some other voices to occupy that space in your podcast feed for a few days at least before we return to baseball a little bit, but also acknowledging that Black Lives Matter and acknowledging that there is systemic racism in the world. We wouldn't want to in any way detract from that discussion either, you know, because like I said, it's it's embarrassingly overdue. It's shameful and it's heinous that like this cycle is set in where a black person is killed in the streets by law enforcement and then you get the 48 to 72 hours of outrage and then life just goes back to the way it was and nothing changes. And racism continues to be woven into the fabric of society systemically. It continues to be institutionalized, like you said. You know, it continues to be normal. The murder of George Floyd wasn't an isolated incident. We've been through this before an embarrassing amount of times. Think about names like Trayvon Martin and, and Tamir Rice, literal teenagers, you know, unarmed teenagers who were shot in the streets. You think about Eric Garner, who was murdered by law enforcement on camera in an incredibly similar fashion to that of George Floyd, like right down to the same cries of I can't breathe. That was like six years ago. Michael Brown was shot a half dozen times by an officer and the the massive demonstrations that followed in Ferguson, we did nothing. Nothing changed. The same cycle continued to play out over and over again. The like the inaction and the indifference 
continued. So I think that's like why it is so important, Ben, that we're having these conversations. Um, you know, that's why it's so important to think about the reasons for that cycle continuing. You know, we have to consider why we've ignored the demonstrations that have occurred before the ones we watched over the last couple of weeks, you know, why we've ignored pleas from the black community for change um, and why systemic racism exists all around us at all times like, and why we have this collective blind spot to that existence. You know, considering those topics is what's important right now and breaking that cycle is what's important right now um, and continuing this fight for change. I couldn't blame any black Canadian or American for looking at what's happening right now and saying like, oh, yeah, like, great. You know, like, it's cool for white people to care right now. Like, thanks so much for changing your Instagram icon. But talk to me in a few months. Right. Like, let's see if you're still talking about this and if you still care and if you're still fighting for me because we've seen it this cycle happened over and over and over again. And, you know, so I can't blame anyone for being pessimistic or, or cynical about it. But that's why I think it's important, Ben, that we have these conversations and we continue to have them and that we actually do things that are going to break this cycle and, and change the culture of systemic racism that obviously exists in our society. We obviously want this cycle to be broken. And at the same time, there's an acknowledgement that these issues, that this racism is so deep seated that it, would take far more than one blackout Tuesday post on Instagram or one you know conversation on a podcast to even scratch the surface of the issues here. But I think at the same time, there are concrete steps that we can attempt to take, whether that's listening and better understanding these issues and their roots, whether that's voting, whether that's spending, donating, signing petitions, and like you said, staying on this so that this isn't just, oh yeah, I remember that week that we were talking about black people and the issues that they face, but rather it's an ongoing discussion and an ongoing search for solutions. And hopefully some change can come of this because what's happening in our world now is not okay. It's not fair or equitable. That's a huge problem. Yeah. And because if you really do acknowledge it and really do empathize with black people and with what they've been demonstrating about, like you see it everywhere in your life and you see it at your workplace and you see it in the, you know, the communities that you spend time in, like, like Ben, we, you know, you and I can, can talk to baseball having, you know, spent a, a great deal of time in that community over the last, uh, you know, several years of our professional lives and, and having loved the sport, you know, growing up, you know, this sports history of racism is well documented. <laughs> this was a segregated sport until 1947, which was uh, around 70 years ago. So you think about that, like there's members of our community right now, like who you can go talk to who were alive at that time and watching baseball when black players weren't allowed to participate. Like this wasn't that long ago. And also it's not like, you know, Jackie Robinson broke the color line and then suddenly everything was all good. <laughs> and then suddenly things were great for black players in baseball. I mean, you look at it today and this is still an absurdly white sport. Like I looked up the figures before we recorded. These are from USA Today. On 2019 opening day rosters, there were 882 players either active or on the injured list. And of those 882, 68 were black. 68 were African-American. I mean, that's less than 8% of the league. And there were several teams that didn't have a single African-American player at all. And like baseball needs to think about that, you know, and about why representation is so low 
about why there's clearly still a barrier for entry for young black athletes in the game and why young black people don't see themselves represented like really anywhere in the sport. You look at MLB front offices, they're overwhelmingly white. We saw Theo Epstein's comments uh, over the last week about needing to be better in hiring practices and needing to you know really consider why he looks around the office and just sees a bunch of other white dudes in golf shirts that look just like him. I believe that there are only two black managers in the game right now, Dusty Baker and Dave Roberts. You know, you look at the superstars in this game and how many of them are black. Uh, you know, look at like the headshots of all the kids that were selected in the first round of the draft this week. And I bet you you're going to see a whole bunch of square jawed white guys. So I think that, you know, this this sport itself actually needs to have a, a pretty serious discussion and, and needs to be pretty introspective about why there isn't more black representation within it. I think a lot of the time Major League Baseball pats itself on the back on Jackie Robinson Day because you know Jackie Robinson is an icon in American history to say nothing of baseball history. And so there's a tendency to say, wow, like we were such pioneers and then kind of move on from the uncomfortable reality that Hank Aaron, decades after Jackie Robinson, faced all kinds of racism when he was breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. And even today, you see Adam Jones go to Fenway Park and be faced with racist taunts. So it's, you know, this is not something that is part of the game's history. It's part of the game's present. And with that, you know, at all levels of the game, whether it's an amateur draft pick or a minor leaguer or a major leaguer or a front office, there has to be some sort of steps taken. And, you know, I don't know exactly what those steps will be, but having that awareness is a start. Changing hiring practices is a start. Opening up opportunities to amateur athletes, amateur black amateur athletes is a start potentially. But again, these are systemic issues. And so there's not a quick solution to any of them as much as that might be convenient or, you know, of course we would like that, but it's not really possible. Of course, but you know, work has to be done from wherever you stand in this sport, whether you're in a front office and, and you're, you're hiring people or you're a player in a clubhouse and, and you need to, you know, relate more to a black teammate. Or if you're like us and you cover this sport, like think about, you know, look around the press box, mostly white. And for years and years and years, press boxes have been predominantly white and black players. They have been labeled as selfish or lazy for the strangest things you know, for daring to celebrate or playing with a necklace on or wearing their hat the wrong way for not busting down the first baseline. And so a black player gets labeled as a selfish or lazy when the eight white dudes in the lineup before him did the exact same thing. The change that is needed, like needs to start like with us. <laughs> Donovan Bennett at Sportsnet obviously has been just like churning out the unbelievable after unbelievable piece, uh, you know, whether on TV or radio or written. I read a line in one of his pieces recently that like it really resonated with me. I'm paraphrasing, but it, it was, you know, racism is not a black problem. Like it's a white problem. Black people just bear all the consequences of it. So it's on white people to do something about it and to consider what we can do because it's not a black problem it's our problem it's a white problem so it is on white people and people in power to do something to make it right yeah donovan's stuff has been just great i mean you look at all of the uh, material that he's sharing a lot of it really personal and all of it really insightful it's really worth checking out in case anyone hasn't so we definitely recommend that but you know your point on language is interesting especially because 
we're obviously writing a lot and speaking a lot about baseball. And so it's interesting how coded it can become. And I think of phrases like, he's a baseball player, which I remember when the Jays signed Steve Pierce, some people in the game for their opinions on Steve Pierce, you know, what do you think? What kind of player is he? And I got one comment that was, he's a baseball player, which is kind of funny in the first place. But when you dig in a little bit and you think about what the connotation is there, the implied description there is that that guy is white. I have not heard people say he's a baseball player about someone who's black. You're more likely to hear he's an athlete or, or some of those more negative descriptors that you mentioned before. So we have to be aware of those. And there's a good article by Alex Spear in the Boston Globe on this. So we have to be aware of this language and we have to avoid it. We have to remain neutral because the language we use does impact the way we view the world. And, you know, at least from our standpoint, that's one very small thing that we have to be aware of in this whole conversation. Yeah, it's an extension of the the different rules that apply to black people then apply to white people. And yeah, that extends to the language and the way that they're described. And that extends to the behavior, whether it's baseball players on field or just members of the community in public that is tolerated or not tolerated and, and the different rules that, that we're playing by here. We need to have discussions like this. We need to read and, and listen to as many voices as we can from the black community and really engage with the issue here and be empathetic and make it a conversation that doesn't just pop up whenever a black person is murdered in the streets by police officers. Like we need to keep talking about this next week and the week after and every week until something's done about it. That's what I'm hoping is is different from this incident. You know, if you're wondering like what you personally can do, I mean, like you, you can do all those things. You can also have these conversations with your parents or with, you know, uh, members of your family that you've never had these conversations with before, whether that's grandparents or aunts, uncles, you can do it with your friends, you know, like you can talk to people around you about these issues and like you can tell them, hey, this is something that's important to me. Like this is something I want you to think about because I don't think that you're thinking about it enough. As you mentioned, you can donate, obviously. Like you can contribute to black causes that are combating racism and, and creating change in black communities. You know, you also mentioned you can vote and you can support individuals politically who represent your values and pledge to enact policy that that can take steps toward change. You know, you can help create the world you want to live in. And, you know, speaking of, you know, talking to your family members, like those are voters too. Like you can talk to them about how important this is to you. You know, the older people in your life, like you can express to them, you know, I'm not sure that you've considered these issues enough and your job is to leave this world a better off place for me, for future generations. Uh, and this is something that's really important to me. So I want you to consider this and to, you know, vote for representatives who are pledging to whether it's police reform or, you know, promoting diversity and acceptance, combating systemic racism, like, you know, support people that are going to make change or they're going to do good because, you know, you don't need to have a lot of power or wealth to make a little difference on this. Like, you know, certainly like if you do, and if you direct a large corporation and you're in charge of hiring practices or you direct a philanthropic wing or something like that, like you can do a lot more, but regular schmucks like you and me, like we're, you know, we're not excused from this. Like we have to participate. Like we have to take it upon ourselves to do whatever's in our power to do something small. If you have a platform like Ben and I, we have to use it to tell these stories. Hopefully it can add up to something big. And if something starts at the grassroots level, hopefully 
that gets to the people in power who really can make the big, broad, sweeping changes that the normal people like you and I don't have the power or wealth to make. You know, hopefully it adds up to something. And when you start swelling around something, change can be enacted and your voice can be heard. So I, I think it starts there. That possibility definitely exists. And it is a shame, like you said off the top, that this conversation didn't start earlier. And in a sense, we're all accountable for that because all of us do have the ability to talk about whatever we want and vote and act and in accordance with those values. But it's happening now. And as you said, that conversation has to continue in the hopes that it can make a real difference. Absolutely. So hopefully you all find ways in your individual lives to enact some change and not let this be a discussion that just goes away like it has so many times before. We're going to step away when we come back, talk about the MLB draft, we'll talk about labor in baseball, all that and much more when we continue on At The Litters. So, the MLB draft. Ben, the Toronto Blue Jays selecting fifth overall, the first time in decades that they have selected that high in the draft. So we were expecting the Blue Jays are going to add an impact player at that point, that it was going to be somebody who uh, you know could be a part of Blue Jays lineups or a Blue Jays rotation for many, many years to come. Like It is a really unique opportunity for the franchise. But in all of the discussions that we had, coming into the draft, whether it was with Jim Callis on this podcast a few weeks ago or whether it was on the Fan 590 or if it was when what you were writing at sportsnet.ca, I'm not sure that we ever considered that Austin Martin would be on the board for the Blue Jays at number five. No, certainly not. I mean, you look at the rankings, right? And these are, in every case, informed by an analysis but you go to Baseball America or MLB Pipeline or ESPN or The Athletic, and in each case, Austin Martin is ranked either second or first, depending on who's doing the rank. To get a player like this, it really is best case scenario for the Blue Jays. Usually with a draft, it's hard to say. And, you know, you end up with a John Harris or a TJ Zoic, and it's like, yeah, maybe TJ Zoic is going to become this ground ball specialist and, and he's going to be great. But in the case of Austin Martin, I know there's no certainty here, and there are plenty of number five overall picks who bust, but it really could not have gone any better for the Blue Jays. Yeah, the LB draft is, uh, you know, it's interesting because we all make the mistake of looking back on it and saying, well, oh, that guy was, uh, you know, he went 16th overall in the first round, and obviously he should have gone higher and this, that, and the other. But there's so many signability concerns that go into this. There's, you know, so much, like, kind of bonus pool jujitsu that teams will will play throughout the draft. Like, you know, the starting quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals was drafted high in a recent MLB draft. You know, like, there's so many things that play into this so like even when you look at Austin Martin at number five should he have gone higher well clearly you know the Baltimore Orioles had other ideas and clearly Mike Elias was thinking you know along the same lines they thought of in Houston when he grabbed Carlos Correa first overall and grabbed Lance McCullers later although it's even like thinking about hindsight like look back on 
that play that he made with the Astros. And at the time it was, oh, you're, you know, <laughs> Carlos Correa going first overall, you know, he reached for him to save money and grab McCullers later. We look back on it now and it's like Carlos Correa is like a 900 OPS shortstop. Like, you know, Lance McCullers is a fine pitcher, but I think the Correa was actually the, the better player in that ploy, even though he wasn't considered it at the time. So who knows how we'll look at this draft five years from now, six years from now, seven years from now, as careers play out, as you know, Max Meyer becomes whatever he's going to be. Who knows? Maybe Heston Kirstad has like this incredible MLB career and it turns out he was way undervalued. Uh, you know, maybe Zach Veen like turns out to be the, uh, you know, quote unquote Mike Trout of this draft who like goes down the board. Who knows? But like just looking at it today, Clearly, this could not have possibly broken better for the Toronto Blue Jays. And it, it really is like a, a real stroke of good luck for the franchise. Exactly. That's what it is. I mean, there's all this talk about, yeah, best player available. We'll try to get whoever we can at number five. In this case, the Blue Jays were actually presented with this dilemma that they didn't foresee entirely where Martin fell to them. And they took him to their credit. I mean, instead of trying to, you know, get cute and see if you can you know, spread the value across multiple picks, which fine, that's a viable strategy and we'll see if it works for Baltimore. But I just think there's a lot to be said for taking someone like Austin Martin, who has the potential in a relatively short period of time to be a difference-making major league player at the plate and in the field. And based on his college track record, you know his bat-to-ball skills are exceptional. You know his contact rate is very high. He can make really hard contact. He has power potential to grow into. He has enough speed to play center field, enough versatility to play shortstop or second base. And so this is the kind of player that just doesn't come around very often. And he, to me, looks like a potential core piece. If that's available to you, don't overcomplicate it. Take him, figure out the rest of the draft later, pay him what it takes to sign him. You know, don't let him go back to college. I don't think that's a possibility. I think the Jays are going to sign him. But to me, this is, like you said, it's a stroke of good luck, but you take it. If you stumble into something this good, don't overthink it. Take the player and add him to your core and see what happens from here on as he joins the likes of Vlad and Bo and Biggio and Pearson in this emerging young core for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, be opportunistic. Bahunjin Ryu is available in free agency and will sign with you, even if you aren't planning to contend in 2020. Sign him now and have him on board for 21 and, and 22. It should be the same thing with trade for the Toronto Blue Jays. If a you know a premier player, controllable player, can't believe I used that word. I hate that word, controllable. But like a, a player who's under contract for a number of years comes up available in trade and you can acquire him now even if it's not like the exact timeline that you had expected for your return to contention make the deal now because you don't know that that player is going to be available in trade in 21 or 22 when you really are looking to push all of your chips in and it's like we talk about the the stroke of luck here it's funny to consider like how much austin martin lines up with what the blue jays value in players and the characteristics that they look for in young players when you think about guys like bo bichette and kevin biggio and jordan groshans we're talking about guys who manage the strike zone well have a plan at the plate have an advanced approach like you said, can turn around early fastballs in the count with really high exit velocities, but also show a willingness to make adjustments and to battle, to put the ball in play, like to fight a pitcher, to not give away plate appearances. I mean, that's Austin Martin. That's what the Blue Jays have been saying for years is something that they value and they want to acquire in young players. Think about 
a versatile up the middle defender a guy who can play multiple positions around the diamond like this is something that the blue jays have said they want players of positional versatility who are you know born athletes and have the athleticism to play in a number of different positions they got that they got a guy who by all accounts from college coaches and people who've watched him play and been around him is uh uber competitive and like plays with a bit of piss and vinegar you know like is very confident in himself like these are things that the Blue Jays value so that this player was available to them at five, like is, is such a stroke of luck. It's amazing. And, you know, you make the point about signing him, which look, he's represented by Scott Boris, who like obviously has a reputation of being pretty dogged in negotiations. And I would imagine that the Blue Jays are going to have to go a bit above slot to get this deal done just because a, the Boris factor B Austin Martin was expected to go earlier in the draft. But I think there are so many motivations from both sides just to get this deal done. There's so many incentives to get the deal done that I have a hard time imagining that it wouldn't. When you look at from the Blue Jays perspective, taking advantage of this unique opportunity to draft a player of this caliber at five, like it would be an extreme disappointment if you didn't get that to the finish line. And then even from Austin Martin's perspective, you're going to what go back to a college season that might not happen this year to play or not play who knows and then re-enter a draft next year that also might not happen or that if it does happen you don't know what the bonus pools are going to look like you don't know what the format of the draft is going to look like all for the upside of maybe improving your slot value by one or two million dollars i mean that would be a hell of a bet to make on yourself considering injury risk as well and the risk of you know slumping or poor performance and which seems unlikely with a kid like this but you never know and possibly hurting your draft stock which has already been established as the fifth highest in the draft i just think there's a lot of motivation on both sides to get a deal done and get austin martin into the blue jay system absolutely and i think the jays knew going into this what they were getting into they're not going to be blindsided they've known this for probably years so this is not a surprise to quote ross atkins he said we were prepared for that we had worked through that scenario and have had dialogue with his representation we feel very good about making this election in other words and i'm reading between the lines here but the Blue Jays know what he's going to cost. They're prepared to pay that price. They're going to get a deal done. And, you know, of course, that's my real expectation is they're going to get something done here. And then, you know, of course, there are developmental questions as far as what happens next. And you wrote about that at sportsnet.ca this week. But if he's able to continue on this path where he's already an advanced player, he has already succeeded against advanced competition, it's not crazy to think that he could join this core within a couple of seasons. And there are caveats here. Injuries happen, and you don't know exactly what the minor league season is going to look like, how teams are going to be able to develop players. But if you look at the path forged by guys like Andrew Benintendi and Michael Conforto, who are college players, exceptional college careers, they made it to the major leagues the year after they were drafted. And that's not to say that you know you can expect that from Austin Martin, but it's a possibility. It's one of the options on the table for him. And that's got to be a really exciting possibility for the Blue Jays as they start to add to this core, not just in the minors, but in the major league level. And I would add names like Alex Bregman and Anthony Rendon to that list. Yeah. Similar top of the draft guys, third baseman who, yeah, went on the same path, right? You're drafted and you spend the rest of that draft year in A ball, or maybe you touch double A, 
And then the following season, you are at the upper levels of the minors, the double A, triple A, and you prove yourself and you put up numbers early in that season, you could be in the majors by the end of that season. Like there is a path here. And it's particularly for a player like Austin Martin, who's coming from a pretty elite college program like Vanderbilt, where he's been, um, you know, exposed to a rather professional environment, <laughs> you know, the, even though they are amateur players, like the way Vanderbilt goes about its business, like Austin Martin would be used to at least some of the things he's going to, you know, encounter with transitioning into professional life. Certainly he's going to be playing more often now and practicing more often now. And obviously he's going to be using wood bats instead of aluminum. And, you know, everything's going to be like a bit harder, whether it's the velocity from pitchers or the balls that are coming off bats or, you know, how fast guys are getting up the line, which affects your clock as an infielder. Like there is going to be a bit of an adjustment period there, but I think you're right. I think there is like a very real path for Austin Martin to be a member of the Toronto Blue Jays even as soon as late next season. But the pandemic just kind of throws everything for a loop. And I don't know how that's going to impact things. Like, I think it's pretty safe to say, even though nobody in baseball will confirm this, it's pretty safe to say there isn't going to be a traditional minor league season this year. So how are minor leaguers going to get exposed to game environments? It's like such a big question for me. And does that become just backfield scrimmages between you know teams with spring training sites that are near each other and between these kind of all prospect teams like the type of scrimmages and like you know informal games among minor leaguers that we see during spring trainings every year does that mean that there is you know you create a bit of an instructional league in late summer for between teams in, in florida or arizona do you supercharge the fall league and have it in Arizona and Florida and have every team have the ability to enter their own team. It's not just, you know, six players on the Scorpions or whatever. It's like you have an actual Toronto Blue Jays entry that has a rotation of Simeon Woods Richardson and Alec Manoa and Kendall Williams. And then you're looking around the diamond at a Jordan Groshans and an Austin Martin and what have you, uh, you know, a Chavez Young, etc. Is that how you're going to get minor leaguers games against each other? Like we don't have those answers right now but just how much game exposure Austin Martin can get over the rest of the summer and into the fall could go a long way to determining whether he can take that same path as a Benintendi and a Bregman and a Rendon or if this thing is going to be delayed a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there's a reasonable chance that there's some expanded Arizona Fall League that he can take part in, get some reps in there. And then you'd have to imagine that, teams will be very motivated to get the minor league season underway for 2021, at which point he could potentially start the season at high A. If everything goes well, you move him to double A after six or seven weeks, and then you see what happens from there. You know, at that point, he's a phone call away. He's an injury away, and he could join the Blue Jays as soon as next year. Now, of course, might take longer depending on development, depending on how he performs and health and all those variables. But when he does arrive, you know, I find it interesting that for all of the focus that's already been on Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr. for years, they're essentially the same age as Austin Martin. Bo is <laughs> yeah. one year older, you know, it's pretty close. And then Vlad was born the same week as this guy. So they're all going to be in that same age group and it's going to be, you know, a core that has a chance at least to do a lot of things together, whether they have enough pitching, whether they have enough health, all those same questions remain. But the Blue Jays seem to have obtained, you know, the Bregman caliber, Benintendi caliber, you know, Rendon caliber. Like this guy has a potential to be that level of player, the kind of guy who is an all-star 
candidate most years, an MVP candidate some years. That's a really special player. I don't think that we should undersell what he can do. And as the number five pick, he's going to face some lofty expectations, just like Bo did and just like Vlad did. But, you know, if you can't dream on the guy now and, and it's one week after the draft, like this is the time that the Blue Jays should be excited about what his potential is in this organization. It shows the weird like curve that we measure like guys like Vlad and Bo on. Like those guys are the exception to the rule. And like we don't say it enough. Like the path those guys took to the majors was so accelerated. Like you said, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., if he uh, wasn't an international sign and if he was like a domestic player, would have been in this draft. Yep. <laughs> like he would have been selected this week. And Isn't that crazy? Right, isn't it? And instead, like we have him at a place where he's had like 400 MLB plate appearances or 450, whatever it was, and we talk about how disappointing they were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he would be drafted right now and headed off to high A or double A. It's truly insane. It really is. You know, I think that when you look at Vlad, that's vital context. Um, yep. Not to say he doesn't have work to do, because he he absolutely does. But that context is is really important. I think one other thing with Martin here, you know, a question that I've heard a few people raise, whether it's in radio conversations or, or on Twitter, you get that question of position. And he's someone who doesn't have a firm position. He played six positions as a freshman at Vanderbilt. He was drafted, technically speaking, as a shortstop, which obviously is the position that Bichette plays. So there's not a clear answer as to what position he plays. And the Blue Jays, of course, will work with him to determine what position he wants to play, what position makes the most sense. But to me, that's just such a a secondary question here. I mean, if he's able to play shortstop in center field and be a Ben Zobris type for them, great. If he doesn't have quite the same defensive ability that they hoped for and he ends up you know maybe he's a third baseman or maybe he's a, a second baseman I mean that's fine too I, I just think that when you're looking at this bat that's what's going to drive him forward and by all accounts he is a good defender when he's ready to hit at the major league level some position will be open for him the Blue Jays have the pieces to move around they have a DH spot it's not going to be hard to find room for this guy. Yeah, and if you watch his his highlights closely and you look at some of the plays that he's made in his college career, like he clearly has the athleticism to let him get by in a number of different places. Like athleticism is kind of like cheating in a way because if you don't have, you know, perfect technique or, you know, perfect rhythm or, you know, reactions or whatever, like your athleticism can carry you through and can help you make plays and can help you figure it out. And this is something this guy clearly has. And I agree with you. Like we spend way too much time in Toronto talking about like positions and where guys are going to play. It all sorts itself out, man. Like the Vlad Guerrero Jr. thing at third base is going to sort itself out. When Jordan Groshans gets to the big leagues, they're going to find room for him. Austin Martin, like they're going to figure it out. It'll all work out in the end, I promise you. And we even look at where baseball is heading right now, more and more towards positionless baseball. I would bet you that, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays would love to have this like jigsaw puzzle of like rotating players who can play a bunch of different positions and who you can like field a defensively optimal lineup, you know, and give your manager, like think about the LA Dodgers, right? And give your manager just more options in terms of how he fills out his lineup card and how he configures his adding order by the you know spin rate of of the pitcher right to try to get in you know hitters whose whose swings match up well with that and and to try to position guys defensively around the diamond that make the most sense 
with the tendencies of your pitcher on the mound and where they usually give up contact and how you want to attack the opposition lineup. Like baseball is kind of moving more and more towards that. And it's kind of in this transition right now where I think a lot of teams are looking for multi-positional talents. Like think about how many times we have, you know, pumped the tires of guys like Ben Zobris and Marwin Gonzalez who can like play capably at a bunch of different positions and bring some offensive thump at the plate at the same time. Like Those players are so valuable for a reason. If you could field a lineup that had like five or six of those players, you can do some really cool things just from a lineup optimization standpoint. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned the Dodgers before, and how many times do you think Dave Roberts has, has looked at, at his roster in the last few years and thought, man, I just don't have a place to put Justin Turner. You know, he's this great hitter, this <laughs> yeah. 300 hitter with some power. Like, I just, I can't find a place to put him. Like, it, it would never happen. Of course, there's always someone who needs a day off or someone who's on the IL and you find room for these guys, even if they don't have that traditional position. And and who knows, maybe Martin will tell the Blue Jays that he wants to be, you know, associated with one position and that might be the way that things unfold. But his bat will determine a pathway to the major leagues and it has the potential to do that pretty soon. Yeah. Sorry, MVP Cody Bellinger. Just can't get you in today. It's no, you go out and you play center field. I don't care if you played, you know, first base or right field yesterday. Exactly. And I think that's one of the many reasons the Blue Jays were drawn to him. And yeah, just I really think it couldn't have gone better for this team. And, you know, we've seen some tough breaks for them over the years, obviously, you know, Josh Donaldson traded for Julian Merriweather, you know, and just things that go wrong and that happens. But this is one of those things that has gone probably better than the Blue Jays could ever have hoped. Yeah, no rebuild is going to be executed perfectly because so much of it's out of your control, right? You know, Josh Donaldson like suffers, you know, the the injuries that he did and, and you aren't able to, you know, train him for the value that you thought you were going to be able to. You know, sometimes you, you feel one way about a trade offer that you get at one point and then it turns out you're wrong about it, right? Like no rebuild is going to be executed absolutely perfectly, but I think it is, you know, easier for a lot of Blue Jays fans to kind of, you know, see the light on the horizon here of this thing. I'm sure everybody felt different during, you know, 89 lost seasons and 87 lost seasons, 95 lost season. Like sure that that was very difficult for fans to go through, but I mean, you can look at a, a young position player core coming up right now that honestly is just like objectively the envy of baseball as far as young position player talent coming through the system uh, is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much potential here. And at some point, that potential has to turn into results. You know, we'll see if sounds like we'll get the chance to see if that can happen this year at some point. But this was a big step in that direction. And I will add one more thing on the on day one of the draft here. I thought it was really enjoyable. Like it was a lot of fun. And part of the reason I think for that, you know, obviously it was a very dramatic twist of events for the Blue Jays and a lot of intrigue because they're picking high. So that naturally lends more emphasis and more focus to it. But I also appreciated the fact that there were not games going on. And it just made me think, I really hope Major League Baseball going forward finds a way to schedule the draft on maybe it's a night and you have all games take place in the day that day. Or maybe it's a full off day or maybe it's during the all-star break. But I think back to kind of our normal draft coverage and normally, you know, you, me and Shy Arden would be in the press box watching a game unfold and you're also trying to cover the draft at the same time. And it just splits your attention. It takes the attention away from the draft to the field. And I just thought this was a much more enjoyable way to experience the draft and to kind of take that information in. Yeah, I think a combination of that and 
obviously nothing else happening in the sports world right now and the Blue Jays picking as high as they were caused me to be like a lot more engaged <laughs> in the draft than, than maybe I have been in recent years and that's because you know yeah there's no game playing out you know before me right and like it was there was a very thin slice of individuals who the Blue Jays may have been able to pick at, at the top of the draft and obviously they got somebody who could be very very impactful going forward so like it is an important moment in this rebuild and and in this kind of turning around of of the Blue Jays back to contention I guess the question now is whether or not we're going to see the Blue Jays play baseball in 2020 I will tell you I am about as hopeful now as I have been at any point in this process that we're going to see baseball in 2020 because I think that the avenues to that happening have just been narrowed down you know, it's either the owners and the players reach a compromise here on a season of, you know, somewhere around 70 to 80 games with ideally, you know, prorated salaries for the players and expanded playoffs. And, and they kind of, you know, bridge the divide between them right now or Rob Manfred, as he can do in, in the March agreement that was signed unilaterally imposes like a 50 game season either way like i think there's you know pretty clear paths now to us seeing baseball of some sort in 2020 i think we're going to see baseball i i don't know you know when you look at the health and safety questions i don't know how long the season is going to continue and that's always been the variable for me but i've never really doubted that there would be a season here just because of how colossally short-sighted it would be not to play baseball under these circumstances and as these proposals and counter-proposals are exchanged it starts to seem like the sides are getting a bit closer together and by no means based on on what's out there publicly are they on the brink of anything but you can see that path so here we are recording this on june the 12th i would not be surprised if at some point in the next few days there's some even more steps toward that middle ground and there is an agreement and at that point all right everyone reports to spring training you have three weeks or so I think we could be seeing baseball in a month I mean I, I would not be surprised if opening day takes place at some point you know July 10th July 15th that would not surprise me but there's still some hurdles to clear here and you know of course that we're still in a pandemic here. I mean, that's that has not gone away, even though maybe we've all kind of gotten used to this this new reality in some ways. Those hurdles are very real from a health and safety standpoint when it comes to finishing the season. But I think they'll start it. I think that that process could begin by the time we record our next podcast. Yeah, and some of these social distancing and uh, you know mitigation practices that had become commonplace, uh, you know, in the months of say like March and and April, have kind of gone out the window, particularly in the United States. So like it's not at all unreasonable to expect there's going to be a surge of cases coming up like in the near you know you talk about like a you know seeing baseball in the near future like we might be seeing a second wave in the near future and you know with a surge in cases comes a surge in hospitalizations and ICU units and and on and on so how America reacts to that and how baseball reacts to that is gonna have a lot to say about whether or not there's a season but you know like you're right like the clock here is ticking on when baseball can be played and I would argue that the owners have been happy to let it tick because the players are losing leverage here. The players want a longer season. They want to play more games and to make 
more money. And the owners have clearly entrenched themselves in a position where they're just going to offer different frameworks of the season that end up giving the players about a third of their salaries for the year, and sometimes as low as 30%. And the owners have this like ultimate cudgel at the end where Rob Manfred can basically just unilaterally impose a season and bring players to the ballparks and force them to come work and, you know, grumble through a season, which would be like, honestly, like a bit of a shame. Like I obviously we would all be happy to see baseball return and it would be really cool to have this little science experiment of like a 50 game season and just see what that would be like to play that out. But we would know that the players were not happy about it. Like there would be a certain nihilism to it that like the players are being forced to show up and do this some of them might not, some of them might hold out, you know, and some of them might say, yeah, it's not worth it. Like I'm, I'm not going to show up and play. And then what would that mean for the level of competition? I mean, the integrity of the game, I think would be hurt if that happened. So it'd be like such a like conflicting scenario where we have baseball back and that's great. And we get to like watch interesting, cool new things happen, but also while understanding that the players did not get what they wanted out of this negotiation and out of this process and that none of them are particularly happy about having to play this season. You know, it almost reminds me of growing up when there would periodically be teacher strikes and there would be work to rule situations. Yeah. You know, this kind of reminds me of that. If there's the two sides are trying to reach an agreement and and that's not happening, the players might be in a situation where they'd say, all right, well, you know, legally speaking, we have to be here, but we are not going to go above and beyond. We are not happy to be in this circumstance. I don't think it gets there. I still think that there will be a negotiated agreement between the players and the owners. And I think you're right that the ticking clock does put pressure on the players and the players want to have as many games as possible and they want to be paid 100% prorated for those games, which is very understandable considering that they already signed an agreement to that effect with the owners even when the owners knew this was a pandemic and it might be difficult to get people in the stadium. So, I, you know, I very much understand the player's perspective on wanting to be paid 100% prorated, but with each passing day that goes by, that is one day that they are not playing games. To me, I think they'll negotiate an agreement that'll be something like 75 games. The players will get 100% prorated. Maybe you defer some salaries. Maybe you expand some playoffs. Get creative to get everyone to the finish line there. But that's my expectation. And man, it, it will lead to, uh, like you said, Art, and a kind of science experiment like feel. Even if, you know, if it's 80 games, if it's 50 games, this, this season's going to be crazy. I hope that they can get to that place where the players get somewhere from 70 to 80 games full prorated. Like it kind of seems like there is a few owners who are, you know, pretty like, you know, who are digging in their heels about not giving players anything more than 30 to 33%. And I hope that they can come off of that. And I think that, you know, the, the players agreeing to expanded playoffs, like it's not a small thing. Like I think that that has actually a really dramatic impact on revenues And that's one of the biggest leverage points that the players have. And like they've conceded on it, like they're using it. And we need to understand that by the players giving expanded playoffs to owners, that's not something that's ever going to go away. Like we can say it's only for the next two years, but once you establish that your playoffs are expanded, I mean, I just don't see you ever reverting back. Like it'll just kind of become the norm and it's a massive win for the owners. Like they'll reap huge revenues in the postseason, I just think that this should be portrayed as as much more valuable to the owners than it is being. And I just think that we have seen throughout this negotiation, you know, one side operating much more in good faith 
than the other, and that would be the players. And I think it's it's honestly, if you really look at it objectively and you really look at the proposals and the back and forth, who has made concessions and who's come off of their point, I really just think that the players have negotiated in much better faith throughout all of this, and I hope that fans understand that, and I hope that fans see that. You know, I'm not sure that they do. Like even, you know, deferring salary payments, like you said, is, you know, something that, that the players have put on the table as well. And, you know, the owners just, I do not think they have been receptive enough to some of the compromises that the players have put forward. And I hope that they come off of their stance and that we are able to get an agreement. Because like I said, it's just going to be a really weird thing to watch this season in which players are doing, like you said, a work to rule where they're not, doing interviews or not going on MLB network or, you know, whatever other demonstrations and, and, you know, little levers that they can pull. It's just going to be a really weird thing to watch that play out. If it comes to that. It certainly will. And I, I hope they reach some sort of agreement. I agree that the players are negotiating in good faith in a way that the owners aren't. And cause you know, we talked about Blake Snell, right. And how those, those comments played. So, you know, it's, it's probably fair also to, to mention the comments of, of a guy like Cardinals owner Bill DeWitt when he's saying that mm-hmm. baseball is not a very profitable industry. I mean, like that's just when you look at the franchise values year over year, when you look at the billions of dollars that MLB obtained from the sale of BamTech, their multimedia company, when you look even at the revenue, it's a $10.8 billion industry. So, you know, I understand revenue doesn't equal profit, but at the same time, you're in a closed loop of 30 teams. I mean, imagine if you were a brewery owner or a coffee shop owner in Toronto and there was legislation in place that would limit the number of coffee shops in Toronto to 30. Like you would do pretty good business. You know, (laughs) there's a lot of demand and that's like, that's what the antitrust uh, exemption allows baseball to do. Like they, they are a closed circuit. They have this product that's in high demand and some would say they're making a mess of it. To me, I think it's okay to have a negotiation here. Like, I I think it's okay for when you have billions of dollars at stake. I'm not faulting the players or the owners for taking some time to reach this agreement. I do fault the owners, though, for negotiating in in what seems to be bad faith at times. But I'm, I'm certainly not surprised that it's taking a little bit of time to figure this out, even if other sports are getting things done more quickly. Yeah, and then Rob Manfred, you know, goes on TV, says 100% there will be baseball. So he's saying like, yes, I will. I do hold the cudgel in this and I will, you know, use that power that, that I have under the March agreement to enforce a season the players don't want. And he also says on TV, well, we just need the players to come off of this whole prorated thing. You're wasting everybody's time. Like, you know that that's like, that that is a drop dead point. That is a walk away point. They are not coming off of that. And the owners are fine to waste time here and delay because, like we said, you know, the the window just continues to close for how long this season can be because, you know, owners will argue that, well, we're worried about a a second wave in November, so we can't have the playoffs stretch beyond the end of October. Like, well, A, the second wave might be coming, like, next week, and B, like, I think it has a lot more to do with television contracts and with what your broadcasters want, and perhaps they've already, you know, committed their time in November to something else. 
Uh, so you are really like working a concert with them on this and that's why you won't go into November. So, you know, and like, look, like, yeah, I love that you brought up like the, you know, the comments that have been made by a few owners now about how unprofitable baseball is. Cause like, where are the Blake Snell criticizers now? Like, you know, Blake Snell was like, you know, just dragged through the media when he made his comments. Like, why aren't these owners facing the same criticism now when they come out and say something like as farcical as it is not profitable. If you own an MLB franchise, like as I'm sure many of our listeners do, and and you aren't comfortable with like the operational realities of that, then you should sell it. Like you have something that is pretty valuable. You have a really valuable asset that you can sell if you are like hemorrhaging money here. Like if you're so over leveraged with debt and you're like stricken by the potential of operating at a loss this season, it's like keeping you up at night wondering about you know what how the hot dog bun order is gonna you know what that's gonna do to your bottom line then cash out man we all know the franchise values the marlins sold for a billion dollars a couple years ago that's the marlins like the st louis cardinals are surely worth more um the vast majority of these clubs ought to be worth more so like if this is so difficult for you sell your franchise and make it someone else's problem and reap the rewards of however many years of asset value appreciation you've accumulated while owning this franchise while owning what is like not something that anyone ever buys to be like this profit churning machine but it's really like more of a toy for like wealthy uber rich people like not just anybody can buy an mld franchise like you can't be a small business owner and like start an mld franchise you have to have like some serious generational family wealth to purchase one of these things, to own one of these things. And if it's that much of a burden for you, I encourage you to sell it and let it be someone else's problem and then go put another coat of paint on your yacht. Oh yeah, and you know that there are buyers out there. In fact, Alex Rodriguez, one of the most handsomely paid players in the history of the sport, is trying to buy a major league team with Jennifer Lopez, who is independently wealthy in her own right. And yet their combined wealth has still not allowed them to buy a team. So, I mean, I would love to be in an industry that says, quote unquote, non-profitable as baseball. You know, I think it's definitely underselling the kind of financial gains that you can make by being in this industry to say that it's not profitable. I mean, sure, right now, is it profitable? No. But Year over year, decade over decade, there is no question that owning a Major League Baseball team has proven to be a very good investment. It's such a farce. Um, the other thing I want to point out, and I am guilty of this, and I need to own up to this, is portraying this fight as billionaires versus millionaires. I, I don't think it should be characterized that way. Because like some of the reporting that's been done in recent weeks has been like really, really strong and really informative and in demonstrating that like half the league is earning at or close to the league minimum. Like well more than half of players in the league are below three years of service time, meaning that clubs have full control over their salaries and can renew them for whatever they want. The majority of players aren't actually millionaires. So this is not billionaires versus millionaires. Like this is billionaires versus like a collection of players where the upper echelon of the game's elite are millionaires, have done very, very well for themselves. But the majority of the player pool isn't close to that, which is like why I just have such a hard time believing anybody is sympathetic to the owners in this fight. And, you know, (laughs) saying the players are being greedy and the, the players want too much and they're holding up baseball. Like if you really look at this, 
from an objective perspective, it's so hard for me to arrive at that conclusion. And I know that people have been like conditioned to to believe that for years, but I, I hope that through this process and the way it's played out, hopefully that's changing going forward. Yeah, that is a change that should happen. That's a good point about players and their financial status. You know, in a lot of cases, you think about even, you know, guys in the in the Jays organization. Is Anthony Alford a, a millionaire? No, he's just on the 40-man roster. He's probably made, you know, a little bit of money in his career, but by no means is he set for life. For Caleb Joseph, who's, yeah, okay, he's he's had some time in the major leagues and he's probably got his, his house paid off, but this guy's doing landscaping work you know, during the <laughs> pandemic. And that's yeah. great. I mean, that's, that's when he gets to be outside, he gets to work with his brother. That's awesome. But all I'm saying here is that's more of a regular job than a, a glorified, some, some sort of glamorous lifestyle. He's working a regular job. This is why, like, I think players need to be talking more and, and not less, you know, like I think players need to be like telling these stories. Like, I think it would be great if like MLBPA got together like four players who are like representative of different statuses in the game for like a discussion on a studio set somewhere for a couple hours, just about what it's like actually being an MLB ball player and what their lives are like away from the game and what the financial realities are like and what the minor leagues are like. Releases a podcast, put it on YouTube, chop it up into little, you know, 10 minute segments on, on different topics and let these players actually speak directly to fans so that fans can appreciate a bit more like that, you know, not everybody who, you know, enters baseball, like leaves it obscenely wealthy. In fact, the vast majority of players like end up needing jobs like, after their careers. Like we focus on kind of the upper echelon of dudes who get paid, but that is the minority of, of players who come through this game. And when you are, you know, fighting for labor in baseball, you're not just fighting for the guys who get a bunch of money and the bonus babies and the dudes who sign big free agent contracts. Like you're fighting for the vast majority of the player pool who are like the Anthony Alfords and like the Caleb Josephs who, you know, who deserve to share more in the revenue from this game than they are to this point. That's why, like, I like I love what Trevor Bauer is like doing during all of this in broadcasting his thoughts and like putting together YouTube videos that explain the reasoning of the player's side. Like he goes on the Pat McAfee show for half an hour and breaks things down in a great way, talking directly to an audience that needs to hear from him. You know, I think Max Scherzer needs to go on the McAfee show and, and needs to go on new media platforms, um, you know, and talk directly to fans and to young people and, you know, Sean Doolittle and Jack Flaherty and, and, and players who are great on Twitter and who are outspoken and eloquent about this should be making appearances on YouTube shows, on Twitch streams, on other mediums where young attention is currently focused and talking directly to fans and explain to people what they're fighting for and showing that, you know, really like players, what they're going through is a lot more relatable than I think people necessarily understand. Like it is a macrocosm of labor disputes in various other industries. Like it is the same, they're fighting over the same issues and the same things that employers are trying to do to labor in every industry. Like there is just in some cases a few more zeros attached to their paychecks. But like that's because these are incredibly special athletes who can do things that not a lot of other people can do. Absolutely. No, I think that all of that makes sense. And if you're in the MLBPA, like I guess there is a kind of public facing strategy element to this. And it seems like the path that they've chosen is to try to try to tell guys, hey, let's not let's not make too many headlines here. But 
that may be overly conservative. Maybe in trying to avoid the bad headlines, they've also avoided the potential for some good headlines or for at least some more understanding as far as what it is that these players are, are going through at this time. You know, I just think that if you let the owners control the narrative publicly, then they're going to control the narrative. And I think that the players have more power to to change it than, than they have. But like, I, I am also like in the minority on that. I think that if you asked, you know, union leadership about that, they would say, uh, well, look, we're, you know, we're not going to win that battle. Like, we're not going to win that fight. We're not going to do ourselves any favors. Once you put the message out there, like you don't actually control it. It's how it's received and what people take it and use it for and weaponize it and et cetera. So I think that they've probably come to the conclusion that it's just, it's not a net positive to do it and it's, it's not worth it. But personally, I wish they'd, they do it a little bit more. You got anything else on this, Ben? No, not really. I, I hope that we see baseball. I think we will see baseball. I think it'll be refreshing too for people because you hear a lot of negativity around this discussion, especially as the NBA and NHL return to play. And, and there's a, this negative tone around the baseball world, at least to the extent that I can tell. I think that will change once we start seeing these guys play games again and in uniform again, because it's easy to forget how exciting baseball is and how talented these players are and you know how fun it is to watch a guy like trevor bauer pitch not to say that his comments aren't insightful because they are but not everyone cares about labor negotiations when it comes to fans and i think everyone likes watching trevor bauer and everyone likes watching mike trout or ronald acuna jr or vlad guerrero jr do their thing so it will be great and i love labor talks like i when it comes to baseball's labor talks and history i've got all kinds of time for that but i I understand that not everyone's like that so if your interest lies on the field hopefully it will be a refreshing change for the field and for the players to once again take that priority and take the spotlight away from what's been the spotlight for the last few months here here He's Ben Nicholson-Smith. He's on Twitter at B. Nicholson-Smith. Our producer is Christian Ryan. He's on Twitter at Christian Ryan NS. Thanks as always to him for his hard work. My name's Arden Zwelling. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.